Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence, and I have an incredible guest for you. Executive Director of the Western State Center and Senior Fellow with the Southern Poverty Law Center, Eric Ward. Thank you for joining us, Eric. Adrian, it's great to see you. Thank you for having me. Yes, oh man, and we were just kind of talking before the show was kicked off about how wild things are right now coming out of four years of absolute chaos and destruction. How's it going for you? It has indeed been a hundred days almost since the insurrection on January 6th. And it has been a hard time for our organization, for communities. You know, Many of us are a little bit on a sugar high. Right, we mobilized across this country to stand up for democracy. We were able to to block this drive towards authoritarianism, and we're feeling that joy. But the truth is, is those who were involved in the insurrection, those who gave support to it, those folks are still very much around, still very much busy at dismantling democracy, blocking civil rights. Uh, and attempting to intimidate folks through political violence. We have a long way to go, uh, but certainly we should understand uh, that we are at a better position because of the hard work that's been done. Yes, absolutely. There has been a lot of hard work put in by people who are actually committed to democracy and we're very grateful to them. But as you mentioned, hey, we have a full kind of a, a faction of people out there who are trying to dismantle this and they also, to some extent, have been brainwashed. And I know that Sunday, April 11th, there's going to be a White Lives Matter group that's yes. reportedly planning a protest at Ohio State House. And I was hoping you could tell me why is this newsworthy? Yeah, it's newsworthy because of the the phrasing, this idea of White Lives Matters. And we, you know, we should understand White Lives Matters is probably less an organization and more an organizing tactic. It is seeking to try to generate publicity. And it's not altogether different, the, the call of White Lives Matters, right, than the call of reverse racism in the 1980s, right, or in the 90s, this idea of white student unions. It's an attempt to kind of shock. The conversation, the real conversations that are having, that are happening around race in the society, right? In policing, in economy. And they are basically trying to hijack that conversation by drawing this false equivalency. In the same way, if you can't say Black Lives Matters, why can't you say White Lives Matters? It's an attempt to shift the narrative. We should understand. There is no one in this country out there saying white lives don't matter. In fact, I learn white lives matters every time I walk out the door. Every time I try to conduct business, engage health in this country. No one is arguing that white lives matters. This is an attempt to usurp the conversation and a momentum towards equity, opportunity, and prosperity in this country. It's an attempt to try to build political violence. But it is propaganda and it remains to be seen if they're able to really mobilize around this event. In truth, the white nationalist movement and the alt-right is reeling. Reeling from arrests that have happened, from job losses, and the understanding that the majority of Americans 
uh, believe in inclusion. And uh, the White Lives Matters is an attempt to delude us or deceive us uh, into believing that uh, this country is on the march towards exclusion, but it's not. We're just watching people throw tantrums. Uh, and they are very unfortunately violent tantrums as we saw on January 6th, as well as when we've seen instances of largely groups of white people necessarily coming together and this feeling of victimhood or that uh, some rights are being taken away from white people and whatnot. And so it does bring a lot of fear in the minds of others, including people who are also white and more toward the inclusion and understand where Black Lives Matter comes from. So kind of, I guess, um, should people be on edge when it comes to events like this? We have to take it seriously. We, we have to understand that there is a social movement that is not grounded in inclusion, it's in exclusion. And it seeks to create a white only ethno state and it seeks to achieve that by rolling back the gains of civil rights that have occurred over the last 75 years. They have shown and been clear that they are willing to use physical violence to achieve that means. We absolutely have to take it seriously, but we have to understand that they do not define the agenda of America, what they do. Uh, is attempt to distract us from the work that's ahead. So let's take it seriously, but let's understand the best way that we challenge the white nationalist movement is by making real the promise of equity, opportunity, and prosperity in America. And it does seem that a lot of people don't seem to understand that equity doesn't necessarily mean that they will lose out. That this is not a zero sum game. But it seems that a lot of people don't necessarily understand that. And we saw a lot of that indoctrination go on over the last four years. And now we are living with the consequences of that. So now that you've seen this new administration coming in, given your position as executive director, of the Western State Center, also being a senior fellow at the Southern Poverty Law Center. What change do you think needs to be implemented to truly make change from essentially what pieces were left with post Trump administration? Yes, the administration has to move very quickly to secure voting rights in this country. We cannot allow states who are attempting to usurp the democratic practice from engaging in this type of violence, or engaging in violence or engaging in political distraction to deny the vote to individuals. So we have to defend the vote, that's the first piece. The second is, is we have to understand that there are real needs that Americans are facing in this country, whether we're talking about health, housing and employment, and we need to meet those needs. We have to understand that the answer and the solution to the white nationalist movement is not a status quo of inequality. We really have to meet the needs of all Americans so that we can move forward together. The third is this though, we have to pay attention to the criminal activity of white nationalists and those who seek to undercut democratic small d practice in this country. We have to make sure that law enforcement is not drawing false distinctions between human rights activists and white nationalists engaged in political violence in this country. And we have to make sure that law enforcement is inoculated uh, 
from attempts by the white nationalist movement to recruit. Those are the real issues that are ahead of us in this moment. And we have to do it at a time where we're also contending with a global pandemic. We have real work to do, we have to roll up our sleeves. We have to manage this white nationalist movement, but we can't allow them to drive the American agenda right now. Absolutely, that is so incredibly important because we are at a very kind of sensitive, vulnerable, delicate stage coming out of the Trump administration in addition to dealing with this global pandemic and trying to get people vaccinated and whatnot. Also with this kind of political civil rights backdrop of having the Derek Chauvin trial. And we just saw New Mexico last week go ahead and remove any kind of qualified immunity. And so there seems to be a big change for law enforcement and the way in which the American society treats and interacts with them. So how do you think that that will impact our future moving Mm -hmm. forward? Do you think this is something we're gonna continue to move toward in terms of dismantling these protections for law enforcement to essentially elevate civil rights? Communities around the country are demanding community safety. And that means a reformed law enforcement in this country. And we are seeing this, we saw this before the recent election in places like Camden. We're watching it in Minnesota, we're watching it in Portland, Oregon, where communities are building solutions around the type of community safety programs that they desire and need. We need law enforcement to join us in that, not resist. What we are looking for, all of us are safe, communities, healthy communities, and it's going to take all of us. That doesn't mean though, and it doesn't exist with a 20th century law enforcement strategy. It's about 21st century community safety and policing in this moment. Yes, bringing us all together because the police are individuals, they are citizens, they are part of you and me and our environment and we all have to work together. And so thank you so much for joining us, for sharing all of your insight and knowledge. And can you tell people where they can find more about you and the Western State Center? Yes, so people can find more about Western State Center and our fight for the 21st century civil rights movement by visiting us at westernstatecenter.org. And we look forward to seeing them there. Thanks so much again. Thank you so much. Welcome back into the conversation, it's Adrian Lawrence. And this time I am joined by Democratic strategist and attorney and managing partner of the Chavis Law Group, Kevin Chavis. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Thanks for having me, excited to be here. Yeah, so Kevin, on Friday, we concluded day 10 of the Derek Chauvin trial. And one of the most anticipated witnesses testified, that's Dr. Andrew Baker of the Hennepin County Medical Examiner. He's the one who performed that initial autopsy of George Floyd. What stuck out to you about Dr. Baker's testimony? Well, I thought he he clarified what he meant in his um, you know, in his death certificate when he stated the cause of death, the Homocardinary arrest, um, you know, related to the restraint and the subdual and the and everything. He said that it meant in the pertaining to or in the matter of, I think was the language. So he he basically was saying that the arrest did occur uh, in not so many words because of the knee on the neck. Uh, so I think that that was good for the state that he seemed to tie the the 
cardiac event to the knee being on the net. That was important. I think that was the point they were trying to get from him. So I thought he was good for the state when he when he clarified that and made more of a link between the knee being on the neck, that restraint and the, the compression to the heart attack that followed shortly thereafter. Yes, that very much seemed to be very important testimony because if he's saying essentially in his report that it was cardiac arrest, then it gives the defense more leeway to say that it was not the restraint on the neck. But if the restraint on the neck is what produced the cardiac arrest, that is so important. And so as you noted, that's extremely impactful for that testimony there. And we also know that the jurors happen to hear from a Dr. Lindsay Thomas. She's a forensic pathologist. She also helped train Dr. Baker. And Dr. Thomas seemed to say that she believed that George Floyd died from a lack of oxygen that was caused by Chauvin kneeling on the neck. She seemed to be very direct in this regard. How would you interpret her testimony in terms of the impact that it had for the parties involved? Yes, you're right. She was much more direct and I thought she was probably their best witness of the day, maybe even of the last couple of days. The police chief I thought was very impactful too. But her testimony was great. You know, like you said, she she trained the current county examiner. She also had over 30 years of experience, over 3000 or something autopsies that she's done. I mean, her resume is incredible. And she spoke without any real hesitation. You know, she talked about her experience dealing with people who had overdoses from meth, methamphetamine or fentanyl. And she said that this was not that, you know, what I saw in that video was not an overdose. She said that with, with conviction. I thought that was a great moment for the state. And you know, the defense in previous days had been criticizing some of the other medical experts because they weren't forensic pathologists. The defense attorney was quick to point that out. Well, she's like the ultimate forensic pathologist. They couldn't use that with her and she was very direct. I thought it was she was a great witness for the state. I think they'd be very happy with 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 her testimony. Oh yes, I, I absolutely agree with that. She seemed very cool, calm, collected, neutral. Yeah. Also the way in which she spoke about the death and how the bodies work. You can tell yeah. that woman has seen a body or two and it is she is a clinician. She she handled her testimony almost in a very surgical way and it seemed to be very beneficial for the prosecution in that case. And it seemed that she had suggested or at least practically just said that Floyd would not have died but for the actions actions of Officer Chauvin. So also yeah. too, to kind of transition away from that to go to more of the defensive side. They had observed that there was a toxicology report that found that there were methamphetamines and fentanyl in George Floyd's system. Plus, there were pill fragments found at the scene, even though Dr. Baker said she did not find any pill fragments in his stomach. How do you think that that impacted the jury? Well, look, the defense, all they're trying to do is just get one juror to, to say there's enough reasonable doubt here that we don't feel we can convict off you know the defendant Derek Chauvin. So they're doing what's expected. Um, they're trying as much as possible to make this about um, any drug problem that drug Floyd may have had, um, anything he had in his system. So I, I don't think that I thought it was damaging that they found he didn't have the pill fragments in his system at the time. That that wasn't good. Um, you know, previously I think when they had George Floyd's former girlfriend on the stand and she admitted to him overdosing at one point. I thought that was one of their highlights when it comes to talking about his past drug problem and experiences with potential overdoses. That was a good moment for them. 
I don't think they have quite reached that that level since. Uh, we'll see moving forward, but it's hard to say exactly how a jury will react. But I know that that was sort of par for the course with the way the defense is expected to attack that issue, you know, in the trial. Yes, it definitely seemed like the defense was going for that kind of implication that it was drugs and right, it yeah. was not the officer's knee on this man's neck for several minutes. Which, you know, it, hey, as you have. Um, Kind of keenly observe the fact that there might be one juror out there who's willing to kind of just embrace that and go with it. But I guess we will see how that all turns out. So we're going to have to expect coming up at some point in time that the defense will call its case and its witnesses. Who do you think would potentially be strongest for the defense? Well, they're they're probably going to try to to call some some law enforcement individuals who will speak to training. Where that will, you know, sort of say that, hey, these type of neck constraints or neck compressions are used and are valid things to to employ when dealing with um, a defendant or an arrestee who may be a little bit frantic, a little bit out of control. They'll probably show some of the same video where where George Floyd was, um, you know, saying, hey, I can't breathe or I'm claustrophobic and was struggling to get on the ground. So they'll probably do some of what the the, the state did in, in calling even people from outside of Minnesota to come in and say, "Hey, we you know our department does authorize that or has trained um, officers to use similar similar tactics." Um, and I think that a, a big thing though for the defense, you know, this case is so unique because of the the mountains of video evidence we have, and it's so striking the video. So there's not much that the defense can do. Um, in the face of those videos. In week one, it was very emotional, it was very powerful hearing those witnesses testify, you know, and taking us back to that day and painting the picture for what it was like. So I think the defense will probably call way less witnesses for sure. And they'll try to, you know, also call some medical experts of their own to testify that, hey, his heart condition probably was a result of years of, of drug abuse and those, just to say those things more clearly. Um, again, it remains to be seen how that will will play um, and what the prosecution will do on cross. But I certainly anticipate the defense's uh, witness list to be much smaller um, and it won't take as much time to get through their witnesses. I would anticipate. Absolutely. And do you actually think Chauvin will testify? Um, that is a good question. Um, he may, but I don't. I don't think so. You know, but it's hard to say. Uh, one thing that I think will be interesting um, is that in Minnesota they have the spark of life doctrine. I don't know if you've heard about that, but it allows for you know parties to call witnesses who can try to human humanize the victim, which is usually not really allowed until sentencing. But in Minnesota they had a 1985 case that allows individuals to be called simply just to talk about, hey, this guy. You know, was a person talk about memories they had with them as a child and everything. But they'll have to be careful because they're not supposed to get into character witness or character evidence. So they shouldn't say, you know, oh, George Floyd, he was such a gentle guy or he was a big guy, but he was a gentle giant. You know, and it's sometimes difficult for witnesses to, to stay sort of disciplined. And if they do cross the line, that will open the door for the defense to bring in negative character evidence. So I'm looking forward to that because this is only allowed really in Minnesota. 
I'm looking forward to see what the state does next week, probably at the end of next week. I think they're gonna call maybe his sibling and one of his friends. Hopefully those two witnesses, if you're in the state, you know, stick to the script, don't go too far because they don't wanna open the door for more evidence about you know, past drug use or any violent tendencies, anything like that, that would not be good for the state. So I think that's something definitely to keep an eye on um, as we move forward. Absolutely, and as we kind of, uh, as a nation, start to grapple more and understand more drug use and dehumanize individuals involved in drug use and understand that drug use doesn't necessarily equate to criminality or uh, violence necessarily. I think that that's an important lesson that we have these conversations and continue to learn from them. And we only have about a minute left, but I would love to hear your thoughts in terms of how do you think this is all gonna shake out based on what you've seen so far? Well, in all honesty, you know, to me, the, the video evidence is so clear and so damning that I don't see how he couldn't, how Chauvin couldn't at least be found guilty for the negligent homicide, you know, for, for count three. Um, even if you say he didn't intend to, to kill him or, you know, didn't do anything reckless or wanton, it, you know, it at least was, was beyond what a reasonable person would, would expect someone to do in that situation. Um, especially once his pulse stopped and you know and all those things. But again, that one juror, they, if the defense can find one juror that is buying their story and that is that is more concerned with the drug use or whatever it is, you know, we could we could see a, a result that most of us will not like. We've seen it before, but I think that he will be convicted at least of the negligent manslaughter. Um, I think the the expert witnesses and the forensic witnesses were very very compelling. I think this week was great for the prosecution. Thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. I appreciate it. All right, thank you. You have a good weekend. You too.